Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles podcast. This is part six on the First World War and its origins. We are focused today on the Italian-Turkish War, 1911 to 1912, the invasion of Libya, part two. Last week I talked about the background to the Italian invasion of Libya in 1911 and the burning desire of Italians to possess a colony in Africa. The obvious choice was Libya because it was so close and also not yet claimed by any other European power. The coast of North Africa is really not far from Sicily and visible on a clear day. From a strategic point of view, if Italy could seize Libya, it would be in a good position to dominate this bottleneck on the Mediterranean Sea and the route between Gibraltar and the Suez Canal. In addition, the Italians were eager to wipe out the humiliating memory of their defeat at the Battle of Adowa in 1896 against an Ethiopian army. When Italy's invasion of Libya was announced, it was greeted with an enormous outpouring of excitement. For months, the nationalists had been calling for a war in North Africa from the columns of their newspaper, Lidia Nazionale, launched on the 1st of March, the anniversary of the defeat at Adowa, and a date when ancient Romans had traditionally mustered their armies. The Catholic press was enthusiastic and heralded the invasion as a new crusade against the infidel. The Italian poet, playwright and journalist Gabriele D'Annunzio known for his fierce nationalistic rhetoric, celebrated the news in newspaper articles. And another leading poet, Giovanni Pascoli, delivered a speech that, writes Christopher Duggan, became a classic text of Italian patriotism. Quote, The great proletarian nation has stirred. Just 50 years after its return to life, Italy, the great martyr among nations, has done its duty and contributed to the advancement and civilization of the peoples and asserted its right not to be penned in and suffocated in its own waters. Whoever wishes to know what Italy is now, behold its army, its navy, land, sea and sky, mountains and plains, perfectly fused. Libya was the last remnant of the Turkish possessions that had once stretched along the North African coast all the way west to Morocco. 
Over the centuries, the provinces there had enjoyed considerable autonomy as bases for Barbary pirates, and the Ottoman grip had become progressively weaker. On the eve of the Italian-Turkish War, it was held by an Ottoman military garrison, but the weakness of the Ottoman fleet made reinforcement and resupply vulnerable. While the coastal regions had a climate much like that of the Mediterranean coast of southern Europe, supporting crops and orchards, the desert interior was barren and inhospitable. Outside the coastal towns, the small native population was divided into mostly nomadic and mutually hostile tribes. Libya had historically been divided into two distinct provinces, whose populations differed in lifestyle and traditions. Tripolitania in the west, with its capital at Tripoli, and Cyrenaica in the east, with Benghazi at its capital. South of these lay the Sahara Desert, of which the Libyan portion was known as the Fezam, dotted with oases which supported isolated populations. Barnaby Rogerson, in his Traveller's History of North Africa, writes how the Libyans' hold on the desert gave them a key role in trans-Saharan trade, the most profitable item for which was slavery. Through most of the 19th century, slavery continued. The majority of the Negro slaves from south of the desert were passed into domestic service in the more well-off and traditional households of the Middle East. Buoyed with nationalist fervour, the Italians were expecting an easy victory. They assumed that the native Arab population, oppressed as they were by their Turkish overlords, would welcome the Italians, or at the very least remain neutral. The idea that the Arabs might make common cause with the Turks on religious grounds seems to have been dismissed. In addition, intelligence indicated that there were only 5,000 to 6,000 Turkish troops in Libya, most of them in Tripoli. It was expected that, when they found themselves outnumbered, they would resist just long enough to uphold their honour and then march back home through Egypt. When the moment came on the 27th of September 1911, the time-worn procedure for starting a war was followed. The issue of an ultimatum, making various exaggerated accusations, accompanied by demands known to be unacceptable. Then, when these were rejected, a declaration of war. The first objective of the Italians was control of the sea, and so immediately after the declaration of war, they attacked and severely damaged a Turkish fleet at Preveza. The Italians also bombarded coastal batteries and captured several Ottoman transport ships bound for Libya. An Italian expeditionary force of just under 45,000 men set sail for the shores of Tripoli under the command of General Carlo Caneva. The city, however, had already fallen, almost without a struggle to a landing brigade of sailors and marines, after the local governor decided, rather than try to mount a defence, to withdraw from the city and to fall back to the hinterland, some 16 kilometres or 10 miles to the south. His plan was to disperse his troops for a campaign of hit and run and to persuade preachers to rouse the local population. The main task of the Italian army over the next two weeks was to secure the city of Tripoli against the possibility of a Turkish counter-attack. The oasis surrounding Tripoli was occupied in a defensive perimeter drawn around it. Where the oases faded into the desert, 
Trenches were dug and barbed wire placed. Meanwhile, the Italian navy also captured the important port of Tobruk in Cyrenaica, also without loss. Soon after, the Italians also captured the coastal town of Alcums to the east of Tripoli. The Turkish garrison there quickly abandoned their positions and retreated into the hills behind the town, where they joined forces with native Libyan irregulars. The first major encounter was at Benghazi, where the garrison put up more resistance. The Italians suffered more than a hundred casualties before the Ottomans retreated a few miles to the east. The Italian landings were accompanied by the first air raid in history, with the pilots of early biplanes flying low over their targets and throwing small bombs out by hand. By the end of October 1911, the Italians had occupied most of the important settlements on the Mediterranean coast of Libya. Their naval superiority prevented the Ottomans from shipping in reinforcements and supplies, and the army had built trenches and other defences around each of the occupied towns. They were confident they would soon be able to complete the conquest of Libya. However, the invasion had triggered a strong anti-Christian sentiment, encouraged by a religious order known as the Sunusi, who preached holy war against the invaders. Many thousands of native Libyans volunteered to join the Turkish army to help continue the resistance. These irregulars knew the terrain well, were accustomed to the climate and were skilled in guerrilla tactics. The Turks were able to arm a fair number of them with modern Mauser rifles that had arrived in Libya on the very eve of the Italian invasion. The 6,000 or so Ottoman troops, though initially demoralised, were greatly encouraged by the inflow of volunteers, which reached a strength of 20,000 and was constantly renewed. The central Ottoman government in Constantinople was reluctant to commit more men to Libya with the various other problems they faced elsewhere in the empire. However, a group of 50 military officers decided to act on their own initiative and to join the Libyan cause. They were members of a political movement called the Young Turks, who favoured constitutional government over monarchy as a way to strengthen the state. Among them was Mustafa Kemal Bey, the future leader of Turkey, to be known as Ataturk. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
The first major counter-attack occurred on the 23rd of October, when an army of about 10,000 Ottoman troops attacked the Italians at the perimeter defences around Tripoli. The attacks on the western sector were easily repulsed by the defenders, supported by a battleship. In the eastern sector, however, where the defences crossed the broad oasis of Skiaraskat, the Italians came under determined attacks and were forced to retreat with the loss of about 200 killed and wounded, and nearly another 300 missing. Nearly all of these were cruelly butchered in the local cemetery after being captured. In response, the Italians sent reinforcements who were able to block the enemy advance and partly recaptured the oasis in bitter house-to-house fighting. The Italians then carried out a bloody reprisal of the inhabitants in revenge for Scat. Troops systematically murdered thousands of civilians, many by hanging. Any Libyan found in possession of a weapon was executed. Others suspected of helping the insurgents were arrested and later deported to Italy. In one particularly notorious incident, a mosque was set on fire with 100 refugees inside. Tragically, these mutual atrocities would set the tone for much of the rest of the war. Three days later, the Ottomans and Libyans launched another attack, but were repulsed at the cost of another 250 casualties. Back in Italy, the public and their politicians were shocked when the truth emerged that it was not to be such a quick and easy campaign after all, and pressure grew for a decisive victory. The government agreed to a request for 55,000 reinforcements who arrived in Libya on the 5th of November. On the same day, they formally announced Italy's annexation of Tripolitana and Cyrenaica, even though the war was clearly far from won. Italian commanders hesitated to commit their troops into the interior, with the chilling shadow of the Battle of Adowa hanging over the prospect of any desert advance into the unknown against large tribal forces. Consequently, over the winter of 1911-1912, a stalemate set in. The Italians suffered greatly from disease. A cholera epidemic hospitalised some 1,000 troops and killed another 300. On the 4th of December, a major effort was directed against the oasis of Ain Zara. Although it lay only 8 kilometres or 5 miles south of Tripoli, the Italians had been unable to prevent it becoming the main base for enemy incursions. An Italian army of 12,000 was sent in and despite some initial difficulties, succeeded in capturing the oasis, although most of the defenders were able to escape and to continue their resistance. The Ottomans then launched a major counter-attack at the end of January, but were forced back. Meanwhile, the isolated Italian forces at Alacrums gradually expanded their defensive perimeter and captured nearby hills after heavy fighting. For the first time, they were able to establish a land route between Tripoli and Alacrums. The Ottomans and Libyans made repeated attacks on Italian positions, Although they were consistently repulsed, they continued to strongly resist and harass the Italians. The strongest attack took place on the 13th of March 1912, when 10,000 Ottomans and Libyans reached the Italian fortifications at Derna in Cyrenaica before being pushed back. 
the Italians were surprised by their enemy's ability to obtain weapons and ammunition, both from across the Tunisian border and also some smuggled in from the coast. They therefore decided to attack a fortified camp at the oasis of Zanzur on the road between Tripoli and Tunisia, which they captured in June 1912 after heavy fighting. The resistance now found it more difficult to receive new weapons. The Italians achieved another success in July with the capture of the port of Misrata, a little over a 100 miles east of Tripoli, and so cut off another source of smugglers' weapons. With the Italians having failed to achieve a decisive victory in Libya, the government in Rome of Prime Minister Giolitti came under increasing pressure both at home and abroad. In order to exert pressure on the Ottomans to come to the negotiating table, they decided to open a second front in the Aegean Sea. The target was a collection of islands known as the Dodecanese, located between the southern coast of Turkey and the island of Crete, of which the largest island is Rhodes. Mostly inhabited by Greeks, the islands had long been a bone of contention between the Greeks and the Ottomans. On the 4th of May 1912, an army of 8,000 Italians launched an attack on Rhodes and landed on the northern tip of the island without any resistance. The local Ottoman troops retreated to the interior of the island in the hope of holding out until reinforcements arrived. The Italians were welcomed as liberators by the Greek population, then circled and attacked the Ottoman positions, who after putting up a courageous defence had no choice but to surrender. In the meantime, the Italian navy occupied the many smaller islands without resistance and had effectively occupied the whole of the Dodecanese already by the 20th of May. The successful invasion of the Dodecanese achieved its goal of finally forcing the hand of the Ottoman government, who now had no option but to negotiate. Peace terms were agreed in the summer at the Treaty of Lausanne. Italy was given Libya and agreed to leave the Aegean Islands once Turkish troops departed from North Africa. Since the Turks did not evacuate their troops from Libya until the end of the First World War, Italy held on to the islands. The author Gabriele Esposito counts the human cost of the war to Italy as 1,432 men killed, 4,250 wounded, and 1,948 died of disease. Libyan losses are unknown, but are estimated some 14,000 killed in combat, plus at least 10,000 more in executions and reprisals. The financial cost to Italy was ruinous, and is judged to have set back domestic development by about 10 years. Although the Italians could claim victory, it was a hollow one. The Treaty of Lausanne changed practically nothing on the ground. While the Turks admitted to the loss of Libya, officially at least, the Libyan people themselves were unwilling to accept a transfer to a new set of masters, especially Christian ones. Nothing much had changed by the outbreak of the First World War. Guerrilla warfare continued and would continue well into the 1930s, at the cost of around 100,000 Libyan lives, about an eighth of the entire population. On the very same day the Treaty of Lausanne was signed, bringing the Italian-Turkish War to an end, another war erupted. 
the conflict had clearly demonstrated to all the weakened state of the Ottoman Empire, a fact exploited by Greece, Bulgaria, Serbia and Montenegro. They set aside their differences to form a Balkan League with the objective of driving the Turks once and for all from the European continents. And so began the Balkan Wars of 1912-1913, to which we'll talk about in the next episode. My name is Card Rydert and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. Feel free to leave comments on the Facebook page or you can write to me directly at carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net. It's always great to hear from you. Next time I will talk about the Balkan Wars of 1912 to 1913, a precursor to the First World War. Greece, Bulgaria, Serbia and Montenegro had all acquired their independence from the Ottoman Empire over the course of the 19th century. None of them, however, were happy with the territory under their control. Each aspired to lands still under Ottoman rule in Albania, Macedonia and Thrace. Thank you for listening. I hope you can join me then. All the best and goodbye.